York, this is Democracy Now! Over the last 10 years, we've never seen such a high number of reported attacks on the health system as in 2022. The scale of it is just unimaginable. Sudan's healthcare system is on the verge of collapse two months after fighting broke out between rival military factions. We'll look at the increasing targeting of hospitals from Sudan to Ukraine to Burma. Then, as Russia transfers tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus, we speak to Professor Jaber Ashkar, author of The New Cold War, The United States, Russia and China from Kosovo to Ukraine. Then to South Africa to talk to Kumi Naidu, the former head of Greenpeace and Amnesty. On Tuesday, he was forcibly removed from a shareholder meeting of a major bank financing, ECOP. That's the East African crude oil pipeline. What do we want? Justice. What do we want? What do we want? All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Sudan, a regional governor from Darfur was assassinated Wednesday after he publicly blamed the paramilitary rapid support forces and allied Arab militias for the genocide of civilians. West Darfur state governor Hamis Abahar was abducted and killed hours after making the remarks in a TV interview. Reuters reports two government sources said the RSF was responsible for for the killing. On Wednesday, the International Organization for Migration said fighting between rival military factions in Sudan has now displaced more than two million people from their homes, with more than a half million fleeing to neighboring countries. Nearly 1,000 civilians have been killed, according to a local monitoring group. In Ukraine, the mayor of Krivirich says Russian missiles struck two civilian industrial sites overnight, injuring at least one person. The attack came days after another attack on the central Ukrainian city killed 11 civilians. Elsewhere, Ukraine's military said it shot down 18 Russian drones over the black city port, uh, city of Odessa, overnight. And Russia's TASS news agency reports Ukrainian artillery fire killed a child in a Russian-occupied part of Kherson region. On Tuesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin met with pro-war bloggers at the Kremlin, where he said Russia's military operations in Ukraine have been plagued by shortages of precision-guided munitions, communications gear, aircraft and drones, as well as other equipment, in a rare admission. The leader of Belarus said Tuesday he's received nuclear weapons from Russia and won't hesitate to use them if his nation's security is at stake. President Alexander Lukashenko made the remarks in an interview with a Russian state TV channel Tuesday evening. We have missiles and bombs that we have received from Russia, both that are three times more powerful than the ones used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There, more than 80,000 people died instantly, 250,000 overall. That's from one strike. And this one is three times more powerful. I don't know. Up to a million people would die immediately if, God forbid, this weapon were used. 
Exiled Belarusian opposition leader Svetlana Tishikonskaya called on the world leaders to respond to Russia's first deployment of tactical nuclear weapons outside its borders since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. She wrote on social media, quote, it creates a serious threat to regional security and sets us on a dangerous path for nuclear escalation. The world must show Lukashenko and Putin that it won't give in to nuclear blackmail. Thousands of protesters took to the streets of cities across Poland Wednesday after a pregnant woman died when medical workers refused to provide her with a life-saving abortion. 33-year-old Dorota Lalik died of sepsis in May, three days after her water broke, and she was admitted to the John Paul II Hospital. The hospital has deep ties to the Catholic Church, and medical staff there opted out of providing abortion care, citing a so-called conscience clause allowed under Polish law. This is a protester at Wednesday's pro-choice march in Warsaw. I came here because I do not agree with women dying, that they have no choice, that doctors have a so-called conscience clause. If they want conscience clauses, they would change their profession. Women are dying because of them and also because of the law that has been established in Poland. Here in the United States, the Justice Department has charged an active-duty Marine and one other person for firebombing a Planned Parenthood clinic in Costa Mesa, California, with a Molotov cocktail in March of last year. The two arrested men, Chance Brannon and Tibet Irigal, could face up to 20 years in federal prison. In related news, a new report from the Center for Countering Digital Hate finds Google made over $10 million from ads by anti-abortion groups. The Google ads were for so-called crisis pregnancy centers, which aim to steer people away from having abortions while posing as reproductive health care clinics. The Southern Baptist Convention has voted to uphold the expulsion of two churches led by women pastors, tightening the church's restrictions on women, banning them not just from serving as pastors, but from having any kind of leadership position. The moves come after organizing by the Southern Baptist Church's ultra-conservative members. In climate news, officials in India and Pakistan have ordered the evacuation of more than 150,000 people as Cyclone Bipojoy makes landfall in India's Gujarat state. The storm crashed ashore earlier today near high tide, with a storm surge that threatened to inundate low-lying coastal areas. It's just the third cyclone to hit India's west coast in nearly six decades. Here in the United States, thick smoke from dozens of wildfires burning in Canada settled over Wisconsin and Minnesota Wednesday, triggering air quality alerts for very unhealthy levels of fine particle and ozone pollution. The air quality index topped 240 in the Twin Cities, the region's worst levels on record. President Biden's vetoed legislation that would have rolled back a new rule limiting emissions from heavy-duty vehicles. The White House says the rule change will cut nitrogen oxide emissions in half by 2045, preventing thousands of childhood asthma cases and premature deaths every year. The bill to repeal the tougher emissions cleared the Senate in April with the support of Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and with ailing California Senator Dianne Feinstein absent. Meanwhile, the House of Representatives has failed in its effort to override President Biden's veto of legislation that would have blocked police accountability legislation passed by the Washington, D.C. City Council in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Thirteen Democrats joined with House Republicans in voting to overrule the D.C. law, which expands access to police disciplinary records and body camera footage, limits the use of tear gas and other chemical agents, and bans certain police tactics, including chokeholds. Washington, D.C. 
D.C.'s non-voting delegate to Congress, Eleanor Holmes Norton, said in a statement, quote, the disapproval resolution is a profoundly undemocratic and paternalistic piece of legislation. Almost 700,000 people live in the nation's capital, and they're worthy and capable of governing their own local affairs, unquote, here in New York. A grand jury's indicted former U.S. Marine Daniel Penny over the killing of Jordan Neely on a city subway on May 1st. Penny, who's white, held Jordan Neely in a chokehold until he died. Neely, a beloved street performer, was unhoused and hungry, crying out for help when the ex-Marine attacked him. The charges will be unsealed when Penny's arraigned. The date of his arraignment is expected to be announced today. The Federal Reserve has decided to hold interest rates steady after 10 consecutive increases since early 2022. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren welcomed Wednesday's announcement by Fed Chair Jerome Powell, writing, quote, the Fed raised interest rates at the fastest pace in decades, and it needs to maintain this pause or risk throwing millions of Americans out of work, unquote. The European Union's advanced a major new law that would regulate artificial intelligence as governments around the world grapple with how to respond to the possible threats of the fast-moving technology. The EU draft law includes restrictions on the use of facial recognition and mandates disclosures of data by makers of chatbots and deepfake videos. This is European Parliament President Roberta Metsola. Going forward, we are going to need constant, clear boundaries and limits to artificial intelligence. And here there is one thing that we will not compromise on. Anytime technology advances, it must go hand in hand with our fundamental rights and democratic values. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres recently said he supports the idea of global watchdog for artificial intelligence that could play a role in similar, uh, similar to how the International Agency of Atomic Energy regulates nuclear technology. The scientists and experts have called on the world to act, declaring AI an existential threat to humanity on a par with the risk of nuclear war. Here in the United States, Jennifer DeStefano, an Arizona mother, testified at a Senate hearing this week about her harrowing experience with a deep fake scam that tricked her into thinking her daughter had been kidnapped. DeStefano says the fake kidnappers demanded a $50,000 ransom before she got in touch with her daughter, who was in fact safe and sound. It was my daughter's voice. It was her cries. It was her sobs. It was the way she spoke. I will never be able to shake that voice and the desperate cries for help out of my mind. It's every parent's worst nightmare to hear your child pleading with fear and pain, knowing that they are being harmed and that you're helpless. The longer this form of terror remains unpunishable, the farther and more egregious it will become. There is no limit to the depth of evil AI can enable. Meanwhile, election integrity groups have been sounding the alarm over the use of AI to misinform people ahead of the 2024 U.S. election. Florida's Republican governor, presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis, released an attack ad earlier this month showing AI-generated deepfake images of Donald Trump hugging and kissing Anthony Fauci. And a Guatemalan court Wednesday convicted prominent journalist Jose Ruben Zamora of money laundering and sentenced him to six years in prison. What rights groups have condemned as a trumped up case and part of a crackdown on press freedom by the right wing government of President Alejandro Giamate. Zamora is the founder and president of the investigative newspaper El Periodico and has long reported on Guatemalan government corruption. The newspaper was forced to shut down in May after months of intensifying harassment 
violence and persecution. To see our interview with Jose Ruben Zamora's son, go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show with a humanitarian crisis unfolding in Sudan as the health care system there is collapsing after two months of fighting across Sudan between the army and the rapid support forces. Volunteers and aid workers are struggling to keep critical health care running. But the Sudan Doctors Trade Union says less than a third of hospitals in Sudan's conflict zones are still open. Many have been targeted by fighters. Those that continue to operate face cuts to power and water and a lack of staff, medicine and diet dialysis supplies. Reports also show since the outbreak of the conflict in April, rape survivors are struggling to access emergency contraception and abortion medication because a warehouse with nearly 50,000 post-rape medical kits has been cut off. This comes as a new report from the Safeguarding Health and Conflict Coalition concluded 2022 was the worst year for attacks against healthcare facilities and personnel worldwide in the last decade. The report found a 45 percent increase in reported incidents of violence against or obstruction of healthcare in conflict zones as compared to 2021, including in Sudan. Over half the documented attacks were in two countries, Ukraine and Burma. For more, we're joined in Geneva by Christina Villa, director of Insecurity Insight, which contributed to the new report, Ignoring Red Lines, Violence Against Healthcare and Conflict. And we begin in Houston with Dr. Kadir Dalouk, advocacy director of the Sudanese American Physicians Association, which is providing support to Sudan's healthcare facilities and services during the crisis. We welcome you both to Democracy Now!, but we begin with the Sudanese doctor. Dr. Dalouk, can you talk about the situation in Sudan today? To Today marks the two months uh, where these rival military forces have been attacking each other. Of course, the collateral damage, as they say, the horror, is the number of civilians who have died or are also at this point seeking health care in uh, places where that many hospitals don't even exist anymore. Uh, good morning to you, to Christina, and to your uh, audience and viewers. Uh, as your report, and you correctly mentioned, what is happening in Sudan is a calamity. Uh, it's almost a nightmare that is getting worse every day. And um, our concern, if this continues uh, and the conflict, you know, uh, spreads to neighboring states, uh, this might break into civil war pretty soon. Um, what is happening in Darfur is, is a total disaster, uh, especially in Al-Jinaina where hospitals are completely shut down and uh, civilians are, you know, between uh, death and, you know, caught into, you know, the, the armed conflict. They're not even to, able to flee to neighboring Chad. Uh, as you mentioned in Khartoum, two-thirds of the hospitals uh, are out of service, uh, evacuated or uh, forced to, you know, to close. Uh, my colleagues who are working on the ground, they're working in very difficult situations. It's not even comprehensible. Uh, they're working with very little, if no supplies. Uh, the major concern we have is their safety. Uh, you know, healthcare professionals and providers are, you know, um, facing uh, gunfire every day to reach to work and to their houses. Uh, they're completely burned out. Uh, they're not able to, 
provide to their families because they have not had any salaries for for months now. Uh, so it's, it's not comprehensible the, the way they're working. Uh, and their safety is our biggest concern. They have been deliberately targeted uh, since the conflict. Hospitals have been targeted. Uh, almost 21 of our healthcare uh, colleagues have lost their lives. Uh, a few do- days ago, uh, one of our colleagues, um, he's a neurosurgeon. He lost his life uh, while he was on duty uh, serving uh, in a hospital called Best uh, Hospital in, in Khartoum. Um, we, you know, we as physicians have uh, sworn an oath uh, to um, treat and take care of uh, civilians and military, whether it's in peace or it's in war. Uh, uh, me and my colleagues on the ground, they are doing their best to uh, abide to this uh, oath. Maybe the generals and those who are fighting have forgotten, you know, their oath to defend the country and to defend civilians. Um, and this is a reminder and a call to them that we sh- they should at least leave us do our duty. And Dr. Uh, Daluk, Dr. Daluk, if you could speak specifically about what we mentioned in our introduction, namely the difficulties for women in accessing emergency uh, abortion and uh, reproductive rights uh, uh, medicine, uh, because uh, these uh, rape kits, post-rape kits, uh, tens of thousands of them are inaccessible. And this is in a moment in, in this conflict where there have been widespread reports of sexual violence and uh, rape. Uh, and of course, in, in Sudan, abortion is illegal. Well, it's 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 very unfortunate that you know um, you know violence against women and rape is used as a weapon in this war, and it's, this is not new. This has been, you know, the case in Darfur and the genocide that happened and the attacks back going back to two thousand and. So uh, it's very unfortunate. You know, uh, we are totally against um, you know rape and using, you know, uh, women's body in this war. I think, um, you know, there are no supplies, period, to to any civilians, including women, including children. Uh, For the last two months, there are, you know, uh, infants who have been born, and there are totally no vaccinations. And we are going to see an emergence of infectious diseases that have almost, you know, um, have been eradicated that they're going to emerge because there are no vaccinations that are happening to those children. And and, and as you correctly said, uh, there are no kits to provide to those uh, rape victims. It's very unfortunate where, you know, uh, the display, internally displaced is another group of people who are facing a lot of, uh, you know, problems. Uh, you know, we are trying to support uh, four different hospitals in Madani, which is a neighboring state. Uh, we are, uh, as Sudanese American Physician Association, uh, operating or funding the operation of the hospital uh, of a hospital in Halfa and as well uh, in uh, Niala, uh, uh, as well in Niala, Niala Hospital. But uh, unfortunately, because of the you know uh, blockage of you know uh, the borders in Egypt as well as in Ethiopia as well as you know um, other countries are closing up their visa access to Sudanese. There is a lot of people who are in the borders. Um, Halfa Hospital, for example, you know, is um, facing a huge number of patients that are people dying uh, because, you know, uh, we're not able to operate like a government. We are an organization. We are doing our best. 
But this is not enough. I think if we don't act— Look, let me ask you something. Do you think the military forces are targeting hospitals and other um, health care facilities? You've stated that so far 11 ambulances have been attacked by strikes, that the rapid support sources have commandeered ambulances, cars from the Ministry of Health. Uh, the significance of this as we begin to wrap up? Well, you know, uh, as I said— Hospitals and healthcare professionals have been deliberately targeted, and it's very unfortunate that, that hospitals uh, are are used in this war, uh, you know, as um, you know areas where the conflict is is going. These two generals are not abiding to any international law, no, not to any Geneva Conventions, and I think uh, what is important is safety of my colleagues on the ground. Uh, the impartiality of hospitals. Uh, both parties are trying to force, you know, uh, healthcare professionals to, you know, you know, say that we are siding with this party or that party. This is not what we do. We, our oath is to all civilians, and you know, at times of war, this is not what we do. Our oath is towards those civilians and towards those who are injured, and you know, uh, this is what we do, and we want to abide to that. Me and my colleagues you know, call for the international community to act now, uh, not even tomorrow. You know, they have to do it now. Uh, I'd like to bring in uh, Christina Villa into the conversation. If you could talk about what's happening in Sudan in the con uh, context of the report that uh, your organization has put out, ignoring red lines, violence against healthcare in conflict. Talk about what this report concludes. Yeah, thanks so much. And most of all, thank you for putting this really important topic of violence against healthcare for discussion into your show, because it is always terrible when political conflict turns violent. And we've seen that in Sudan in past years during demonstrations and particularly now. But it is heartbreaking to see the personal consequences for people when they can't access healthcare in such situations. And I think you've already evoked several of these issues. You know, imagine a woman going into labor or needing emergency care after experiencing sexual violence, and then you have security forces using roadblocks to prevent access and people seeking treatment when the hospitals um, are bombed or occupied and raided by security forces. And we've documented it numerous times for Sudan of military security forces going into hospitals, beating health workers there, arresting them in front of patients. And this increases the, the, the suffering for the civilians in conflict to incredible extent. And so much of these consequences could really be prevented if only healthcare would be properly protected in conflict. And that's such an important topic the international community needs to address more seriously. And can you speak, uh, Christina, about where these attacks are most uh, uh, prevalent and also uh, whether these attacks are mostly deliberate? So our report for last year identified Ukraine and Myanmar as two countries where the whole health system is under an incredible attack. In Ukraine, some 11% of the health infrastructure has been damaged. 
And in Myanmar, the devastation is in so many areas, through so many different ways, from arresting health workers, from the uh, coup government bombing its own civilians. Um, it is it is really, really close to unimaginable for people who live in more secure places, the extent of the violence that occurs. And these are the two countries where most events have been documented. But in total, we covered 42 countries and it is so widespread and such a common problem in conflict. Christina Villa, if you could uh, talk about the best practices, though it's horrible to think in, you know, conflict regions, what are the uh, best rules of war, but also the effect on healthcare workers specifically, and use specific examples. I mean, there is a law of war, and that is very clear that healthcare should be protected and healthcare needs to be provided to all sides in conflict. And this is really something that the humanitarian community tries to do, to not ask who the person who needs care is, but to offer it to everyone. But the real problem is that in conflicts like Sudan, but so many others, it is the conflict parties that do not respect these rules and that they go on deliberate attacks on the health systems in many places and also the health workers because they're just so important in preventing further consequences to civilians. And it, it is uh, so there are practical things that humanitarian agencies can and are doing. But one of the big concerns is that there's just no no, there's no impunity for this. So we have these laws, but there's never any consequences. And there, unfortunately, we have very few examples of any attempts being made to actually address that this rules of law are just not respected. Christina Villa, very quickly, before we wrap up, you've said uh, that Russia's attacks on Ukraine uh, are not without precedent. Uh, they're just different in terms of scale and intensity. The World Health Organization also found earlier this year that the number of attacks on healthcare facilities and personnel uh, in Ukraine was the highest ever recorded in any uh, humanitarian crisis. So what do you mean when you say they're not without precedent? We've seen it in Syria, hospitals being deliberately bombed. Um, we've seen it as far back as in Chechnya in 1996, when uh, Russian forces attacked uh, an ICRC-run hospital. So it definitely uh, is nothing, unfortunately, nothing new. But we're also seeing it in many other countries. And it may also be worth to note that the Wagner forces in Africa have also been um, attacking health systems in the Central African Republic, for example. Christina Villa, I want to thank you for being with us, Director of Insecurity Insight. We'll link to your new report, Ignoring Red Lines, Violence Against Healthcare in Conflict. And Dr. Khidir Dalouk, uh, Advocacy Director of the Sudanese American Physicians Association, speaking to us from Houston. Coming up, as Russia transfers tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus, we'll speak to Professor Gilbert Ashkar, author of The New Cold War, The United States, Russia and China from Kosovo to Ukraine. Stay with us. And that's when he said, I don't want to be washed up without you, evolved to a lump in a shell, looking out at the world with no legs, no hands, no head, no glands, no plans, no throat, just sand. She said, well, don't go backwards. 
Don't stay sat down too long. Don't be background sound drowned out. Don't get stuck, move on. Don't get caught, found out. Don't get lost, don't get crossed out. Don't get squashed, don't come back, don't leave. Don't get drum tracks, don't get reverb. I get you, but you don't get me. He said, I never see more than I see right now. But we've never known less. We've never known trust, no wisdom. How can a million blips with their silicone chips and an Instagram twitch repair the deep cracks to the kingdom? She said, we're defined by our ill-formed opinions. Refreshed by the shock of it all. How novel. Geronimo Blues by Speaker's Corner Quartet. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We turn now to Ukraine and what our next guest calls the new Cold War. The president of Belarus has announced Russia's begun transferring tactical nuclear weapons to the former Soviet state, which shares a nearly 700-mile border with Ukraine. In an interview, Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko warned he's ready to use the nuclear weapons if Belarus faces aggression. Meanwhile, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has urged allies to dig deep to provide more arms and ammunition to help Ukraine as it launches its counteroffensive against Russia. Austin's comment comes two days after Russian President Vladimir Putin admitted Russia's facing a shortage of ammunition, drones and warplanes, despite a sharp increase in military production. In other news from Ukraine, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, is back in Ukraine to visit the Russia-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the largest nuclear plant in Europe. The IA EA has expressed concern the recent destruction of the Kahovka Dam could impact the plant's supply of water needed for cooling. This all comes as the U.S. State Department has announced Tony Blinken's plan to leave Friday for a trip to China this weekend, the first by U.S. Secretary of State since 2018. In February, China put forward a 12-point peace plan to end the war in Ukraine. We're joined now by Jobert Ashkar professor of international relations at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. His most recent book is titled The New Cold War, the United States, Russia and China from Kosovo to Ukraine. He recently wrote an article for Truthout headlined, Washington is obstructing the path to a political settlement in Ukraine. And his recent Le Monde piece is headlined, A Cold War by Any Other Name. There's been much debate over the definition of the term Cold War, but one thing's for sure, we're in one now. Um, welcome back to Democracy Now!, Professor Ashkar. If you can start off um, with that issue uh, that's on the table right now, this 12-point Chinese peace plan, talk about how the U.S. media and the U.S. government characterized it. Uh, talk about what you feel is being missed? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, good morning, uh, uh, Amy, and uh, thank you to, to you and uh, to Nermeen for, for inviting me. It's, uh, it's very important to get uh, this opportunity, especially for a book like, uh, like this one, which, which is of the kind that uh, the mainstream prefers to, to ignore, as you know well. 
Um, now about uh, the, 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 the Chinese plan, well, th that is part of uh, an attitude that has been uh, expressed by China actually since the beginning of, uh, of the Russian invasion in February last year. Uh, from the very beginning, I mean, two days into the invasion, the, uh, China stated that it stands for the uh, uh, territorial integrity of all countries, including Ukraine. That was specified in this way. And yet that was completely ignored and shunned by, by, by Washington. And th the same story happens now, because this plan is an attempt by China to, to set principles, general principles, and they include territorial integrity and sovereignty of all countries. So that's a very important principle to, to, to start with in, in addressing the, 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 the issue of Ukraine. And yet that has been shunned and, and uh, you know, denounced as a sham, as empty and all that. So there is deliberately no will on the side of Washington to, to get China into that, and yet there can't be any, any p uh, political settlement of, of this without involving China, and I would say also without involving the United Nations, where not, China, of course, is one of the five uh, permanent members of the Security Council. You say even Zelensky acknowledged what China was putting forward, and that while the United States uh, says this is clearly a pro-Russia plan, that even Putin bristled uh, at this point of China acknowledging the sovereignty of Ukraine. Right. I mean, there was a, an amazing contrast between uh, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden uh, just, you know, uh, uh, I mean, speaking of the Chinese plan in, in very uh, uh, contemptuous terms, and the, the Ukrainian president himself, who actually uh, uh, emphasized the fact that uh, this is a positive and uh, uh, a good starting point. And there have been, therefore, since this plan, uh, increased uh, 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 relay, I mean, negotiations and discussions between the Ukraine government and, and the Chinese government. So, again, this is a matter of attitudes, and I think that it is very deliberate on the side of Washington. That's part of what I call the new Cold War, which hasn't started now. Uh, 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 this uh, deliberate uh, uh, um, uh, desire to keep China out, to, to, to keep the United States in control of everything, I mean, this is really, and it doesn't take, uh, you know, uh, Beijing or Moscow to, 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 to acknowledge or to see it. I mean, there is indeed, uh, I mean, a very clear U.S. Uh, hegemonic uh, position, and uh, that has been the case since the 90s. Uh, so, Gilbert Ashkar, if you could, uh, let's go to the, the, your book and, and the title, The New Cold War. If you could explain what the features of the war are, who you think uh, the principal adversaries are, and why you believe that this situation is more comparable to uh, what global, the global configurations of power prior to World War I rather than that which existed between 1945 and the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which is, of course, uh, what was termed the Cold War. Right. Well, actually, the, the expression Cold War uh, existed before the First World War. And the, the, the first use, I mean, the, on, on the record, of, of that expression is by uh, the German socialist leader, uh, uh, Edward Bernstein. 
And uh, uh, that, uh, I mean, by that expression, uh, he meant uh, uh, the, the fact that Germany was engaged in a military build-up uh, in preparation of war uh, against uh, the, the, the France and the, the, the rest of, of its uh, European uh, uh, rivals uh, without yet getting into a real war, into a hot war. And that's what he called a cold war. That's the origin actually, or the first uh, uh, use of the expression. And uh, the particularity of the Cold War of uh, post-1945, the, the, the one that is considered by historians to run from 1945 after the Second World War until 1991, uh, uh, that uh, Cold War had also an ideological dimension. But the ideological dimension is not what is called the Cold War. The Cold War refers to the military buildup and the fact that the United States in particular, for the first time in, in, in its history, kept, even without war, a high level of military expenditure, a very high level of military expenditure, much higher than what you had between the two world wars, let alone what existed before the First World War. And that's what some uh, American economists call the permanent war economy. Right, and that is a key characteristic of of this cold of the Cold War, whether the 1945-1991 or the new Cold War that actually started after the demise of the Soviet Union, uh, started first by Washington. Washington. Uh, maintained uh, a military uh, uh, budget based on the scenario of two major wars. And that was clearly, I explained that at the time in, in, uh, in articles, two articles which are uh, reproduced in the book. Uh, they, are, they make two chapters out of five, uh, in which I said in the 90s, I, I showed how the military uh, uh, planning of the Pentagon was based on the, the possibility of, of war with both Russia and China. And that, that was there. And, and, and this, I mean, will, will lead on the background of other provocative attitudes by Washington towards these two countries into the new, what I call the new Cold War, which I identified as starting with the Kosovo War, uh, uh, due to the fact that this was the first time NATO, as such, enters into a war and circum—I mean, a war circumventing the uh, United Nations Security Council. And uh, Gilbert Rashkar, uh, so if you could speak about that, uh, what the involvement of, of NATO was in Kosovo, because the first, in fact, airstrikes uh, that NATO carried out in its history uh, were in. Uh, Bosnia uh, against Bosnian Serbs uh, to uh, prevent the ethnic cleansing of Bosnian Muslims that was underway then. What distinguished the, the two uh, uh, air wars uh, from uh, Kosovo from uh, those in, in Bosnia? Right. I mean, the, 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 the bombings uh, uh, of, since the early 90s, the bombings in, in uh, I mean, in former Yugoslavia were, uh, remained relatively limited and were uh, linked to the United Nations intervention in, uh, in that area. But the Kosovo War is uh, the first real war. I mean, that's what you can call, call a war for NATO. I mean, uh, of course, you had a war in Bosnia, you had a war in former Yugoslavia, but uh, NATO, the first real NATO war is the Kosovo War, and that war 
was conducted with, I mean, uh, by circumventing the, uh, the opposition of both Moscow and Beijing at the UN Security Council. So that set, an, uh, I mean, a, a pattern of, uh, of uh, ignoring, if you want, the, the international law and the, the United Nations that the two other countries found extremely uh, alarming. And of course, that will be repeated at a much higher scale later on with the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which again was completely illegal by the standards of international law uh, and again, uh, of course, circumvented the, the, the uh, Security Council. Uh, <clears throat> Professor Ashkar, in an article published earlier this year headlined Consistent Anti-Imperialism and the Ukraine War, you wrote, quote, Consistent anti-imperialists must combine their support of Ukraine's right to self-defense with support for a U.N.-based peaceful settlement on the ongoing war. Those who call for peace while opposing Ukraine's right to um, get what it needs for its defense are, in fact, advocating its capitulation. Can you talk about this, Ben, also talk about the increasing role of China here and also in other places, and how the U.S. is continually trying to counter that and the significance of Blinken going to China this weekend. Right. Uh, well, I think, I mean, there are two pitfalls that uh, progressive forces should, uh, should be avoiding. Uh, one is to, to react to Washington and NATO's support to Ukraine by re rejecting this and uh, ignoring, uh, the, in this way, the agency, if you want, of the Ukrainians who are fighting for their country, they are fighting for their population, and we can see Russia is targeting more and more uh, the civilians in, uh, in, in Ukraine. Ukraine has the, the, the very legitimate right to self-defense, and therefore, if we acknowledge this right to self-defense, we have to acknowledge its right to get weapons for this self-defense. But this being said, uh, there, I mean, uh, I would put the emphasis on self-defense. That is, uh, I, I think uh, uh, it is right that Ukraine gets weapons for s defensive weapons like anti-aircraft, anti-missile, anti-tank, and the rest. But uh, uh, the, the 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 demands that uh, of uh, of escalation of the war, of enabling Ukraine to strike deep into Russian territory and the rest, these are extremely dangerous. They, they put the, the world uh, at, at very high risk. And I would say they put also the Ukrainian population at very high risk because Russia has not yet uh, uh, done to Ukraine what it could do if, if, it, if it wanted to turn even more violent than uh, what it is. Now, on the other hand, uh, as progressive, we have to, 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 to be in favor of a, a, a peaceful settlement, a political settlement, but on the basis of principles. And I think there can't be any sustainable peace for uh, uh, Ukraine uh, without the involvement of the United Nations and if, if I mean, without uh, basing that peace on the principles of the UN Charter, in, including, of course, the sovereignty and integrity, the territorial integrity of, uh, of all countries. And that would mean also, therefore, therefore involving China. And China is ov obviously the, the country with the, by far, I mean, the highest leverage over Russia, uh, even much more now, because uh, Russia has, because of that war, 
uh, turn more and more uh, uh, dependent in some way economically and the rest on, on China. So it is imperative to, to associate China, to work with China and uh, 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 in order to, to get to some peace. And, you know, even European countries like France, like Germany, uh, major uh, allies of the United States advocate the involvement of China in a, a, a political settlement process, whereas uh, Washington until now has been blocking this, probably also waiting to see what the, the, the counteroffensive, the ongoing Ukrainian counteroffensive might uh, 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 produce. Uh, now, you, you mentioned in the news uh, that uh, Antony Blinken is going to Beijing for the first time since 2018. Imagine that. That's amazing. Uh, well, uh, I hope then that uh, that Washington will will change its uh, its attitude and and uh, uh, try to work with China for a, a political settlement of this terrible tragedy. Uh, Gilbert Rashkar, before we conclude, I'd like you to explain the uh, longer view, uh, historical context of what you think uh, uh, propelled uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine at this moment. You speak about the, the neoliberal policies, uh, for example, that were implemented immediately after the dissolution of the Soviet Union and how uh, that may have contributed to the rise of uh, uh, Putin himself and the distinction between the causes of the Russian invasion in 2014 and 2022, why you see the, those as, as distinct? Right. Uh, well, first, yes, I mean, the, the, uh, Putin himself, and I would say even Xi Jinping for China, they are in part the, 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 the product of the kind of international conditions that have been created by uh, by Washington. I mean, Washington in the 90s had a, a, a window of opportunity during which, as it acknowledged itself, uh, it was in a position to shape the world. And, and therefore, it, it faced uh, several options. And, uh, uh, well, instead of, of going for uh, options, uh, peaceful options, pe uh, options leading to a, to a long-term peace on the, in, in international relations and into enhancing the role of the United Nations, it made the, the, opposite, uh, the opposite choices. Uh, uh, one of them being, of course, the choice of not only keeping NATO, which was originally built as a defensive alliance against the Soviet Union, but to, uh, to enlarge NATO eastward towards countries that were uh, previously under uh, Soviet uh, uh, domination. Uh, you, you mentioned, yes, the neoliberal policies that were uh, promoted and fostered in Russia by Washington, by the International Monetary Fund and, and, and the whole set of, of Western interests. And they were absolutely uh, uh, destructive of, uh, of uh, Russian society. I mean, the 90s are nightmarish uh, for if you look at, uh, at what happened at the, 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 the very sharp drop in the uh, standard of living of, uh, of the Russians to the point that uh, in, in, in the late 90s, the gross domestic product, that is the whole economy of Russia, was equal to only the military budget of the United States. That tells you a lot, right? So this is the creation that created I mean, the, the condition, the, the, the situation that created uh, uh, Vladimir uh, uh, Putin. I mean, his kind of uh, uh, nationalist authoritarian rule. And uh, 
uh, uh, and of course, uh, uh, even that rule itself uh, has an evolution over the years, which went f further and further into nationalism and authoritarianism, but that was in, on a background of, uh, of conflicting relations with Washington, with the Western countries, with, with NATO. And uh, that, that uh, cre uh, played a real role in that regard. And in the same way, as I just said, that also the kind of uh, provocative attitude of, uh, of the United States towards China created conditions under which nationalism can, could, can flourish and lead also to a increased authoritarianism and nationalism as represented by uh, China's uh, present uh, uh, ruler, uh, Xi Jinping. So th there is a connection between all that, bec because the, the, the global conditions uh, will create a terrain for this or that, depending on their nature, this or that uh, 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 de development. So yes, you had this. Now, uh, we just some have a of minute wars, to go, I mean, the, Professor the, the, Ashkar. Excuse me? We just have a minute to go, Professor Ashkar. Oh, right. Well, very quickly, the, the, uh, the, I mean, the two wars, the, the, the two military interventions by Russia in uh, Georgia in 2008 and in Ukraine 2014 were meant by the Russian side to block the uh, accession of these two countries to NATO by creating a war-like situation with the two countries. Uh, uh, we can't say the same of the annexation of Crimea, which also took part, uh, took, uh, I mean, took place in 2014 which was meant uh, by Vladimir Putin as a means to restore his popularity, which had been uh, dwindling uh, before, beforehand. He knew how, how this could play uh, uh, very well with Russian nationalism. And the 2022 invasion, uh, indeed, is plainly in that context. It's not to, it wasn't to block uh, Ukraine's accession to NATO, because that wasn't uh, on the table anyway. Uh, anyway. At, uh, at that point. Jaber Ashkar, we want to thank you very much for being with us. Professor of International Relations at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. His most recent book, Just Out, The New Cold War, The United States, Russia and China, From Kosovo to Ukraine. And we'll link to your most recent piece, Washington's Obstructing the Path to a Political Settlement in Ukraine. Coming up, we go to Johannesburg, South Africa. Why was Kumi Naidu, the head, former head of Amnesty International, um, uh, as well as Greenpeace, thrown out of a bank meeting? Stay with us. Soldiers who want to be heroes Number practically zero But there are millions Who want to be civilians Soldiers who want to be heroes Number practically zero But there are millions Who want to be civilians Come and take my eldest son Show him how to shoot a gun Wipe his eyes if he starts to cry When the bullets fly Give him a rifle, take his hoe, show him a field where he can go to lay Soldiers who want to be heroes by the specials. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. 
We end today's show in South Africa, where climate campaigners attempt to disrupt the annual shareholders' meeting for Standard Bank to protest the bank's financing of the proposed East African crude oil pipeline, known as ECOP. The 900-mile pipeline would carry crude oil from Uganda to Tanzania. France's Total Energies and the China National Offshore Oil Corporation are behind ECOP, working with Ugandan and Tanzanian state-owned oil firms. Kumi Naidu, former head of Greenpeace and Amnesty International, and Extinction Rebellion activist Malik Dasu were forcibly removed from Standard Bank during their peaceful protest. Kumi Naidu joins us now from Johannesburg, South Africa. Kumi, welcome back to Democracy Now! Explain your protest and explain exactly for a global audience what ECOP is. So basically, Standard Bank, like many other banks around the world, on the one hand, now recognize that we are in a climate emergency, recognize that there must change, but their actions appear to be contradictory when it comes to an increase in fossil fuel investments that we are seeing, as was the case with Standard Bank. In particular, the East African crude oil pipeline project will see about 100,000 Tanzanians and Ugandans displaced. We've already seen the signs of human rights violations. Of course, as always, they will promise that there's going to be massive numbers of jobs. We know most of the jobs are transient. Most of the early jobs, in fact, at the higher paid level will be people from outside of community. The bottom line, though, is that this East African crude oil pipeline is a carbon bomb. The amount of uh, carbon that this would put into the atmosphere will be catastrophic, right? That would be the equivalent of sort of nine million cars, uh, for example, on the road. And so, in addition to that, Standard Bank is also supporting the Cabo Delgado oil, uh, gas projects in Mozambique. And yeah, in South Africa, in KwaZulu-Natal, they have been supporting Tendele Coal, a project that has seen activists being killed and so on. And essentially what we are saying to Standard Bank and to other banks, that you need to recognize that you are now legitimate targets of protests, that we do not have time right now to go after every oil, coal, gas company, every deforestation company and so on. We have to follow the money and shut the flow of capital at source. And basically this might have been aimed specifically at Standard Bank, but it is also a call and an encouragement to activists all over the world, let's follow the money and let's shut the flow of capital to dirty energy and start redirecting it to clean energy. And Kumi Naidu, so could you explain who are, what are the companies that are backing this pipeline, the Chinese uh, uh, corporation, uh, the National Offshore Oil Corporation, as well as Total Energies, the French company? Well, Total is the biggest play in all of this. And, and here's, the, here's the kicker, right? Assuming that this was okay in environmental terms, right? Let's just for a moment say all our concerns are misplaced, right? But all of this is nothing's going to Africa. All of this is going to Europe, okay? So it's extraction at its worst. It's colonial. It's, it's, it's going to potentially put the investors in this project like other investors that are putting money into carbon bombs right now, the threat that they must understand is that activism against that is rising all around the world and the possibility of them ending up with what they like to call stranded carbon assets is becoming more and more a reality.
just uh, oil, the wealth of natural resources uh, across the continent of Africa, why so many of them, and certainly the profits, are going to Europe, uh, uh, to China and elsewhere, but not to the continent itself? I think we've lost each other. Can you hear us, Kumi? Can you hear us, Kumi? I don't hear them anymore. We're talking to... We're talking to Kumi Naidu um, in Johannesburg, South Africa. He may have just lost the line to us. He's the former head of Greenpeace International and also Amnesty International. And he was just thrown out of a standard bank meeting in South Africa protesting ECOP. Um, let me go to Extinction Rebellion activist Malik Dasu, um, who was also thrown out with Kumi, speaking outside uh, Standard Bank's AGM. We want them to invest in renewable energy for the mass populations, vulnerable communities, directed where it's needed. The concept of energy justice should be the primary guiding principle that informs all their investment strategies in energy from now on. Germany also held stop ECOP protests in Bonn, where they gathered for a COP28 prep conference. Uh, this year's United Nations-sponsored climate summit will be hosted by one of the world's biggest fossil fuel producers, the United Arab Emirates. The meeting will be presided over by the head of UAE's national oil company, Sultan Al-Jaber. On Tuesday, the Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg, who recently graduated from high school, spoke at the conference. It is what we decide now that will define the rest of humanity's future. And whether we choose to do that or not, if we don't, it will be a death sentence to countless of people. And it is already a death sentence to countless of people living on the front lines of the climate crisis today. On Tuesday, the U.S. Special Climate Envoy, uh, John Kerry, told the U.N. Security Council global steps to tackle climate change must be ramped up and the world needs to more aggressively reduce its reliance on coal and other fossil fuels. It's now indisputable, indisputable, that the climate crisis is one of the top security threats, not just to the developed world, but to the entire planet, to life on the planet itself. Uh, and it is a crisis that already today costs countries billions of dollars each year, which we spend not even to prevent at this point, but just to clean up the mess. And most importantly, it costs the world millions of lives. It's an active threat against the livelihoods and the peace of people everywhere on this planet. In May, over 130 uh, U.S. lawmakers and members of the European Parliament sent a joint letter to President Biden, to the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, uh, as well as the U.N. Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres, demanding the removal of Sultan Ahmed al-Jabbar, head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, as president of the upcoming U.N. Climate Summit, uh, COP28, in the UAE. The law Makers include Senators Ed Markey and Bernie Sanders, who wrote one of the largest barriers to strong climate action.
Nation, has been and remains the political influence and obstruction of the fossil fuel industry and other major polluting industries. Uh, we want to thank Kumi Naidu um, in Johannesburg, South Africa, the former head of Greenpeace International and Amnesty International, who just got detained, uh, along with uh, Extinction Rebellion, thrown out of a Standard Bank meeting. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Fels, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alkoff. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Thanks so much for joining us.